0: It's springtime in Israel, the Jewish month of Nisan. Fragrant, beautiful white petals are in blossom on the almond trees. It's grown warm. The time of the great Passover feast in Jerusalem has come. Like thousands of other pilgrims, Jesus and his disciples are on their way up to Jerusalem they have passed through the ancient city of Jericho, which is about 17 miles east of Jerusalem. The Roman road goes up from Jericho over the Mount of Olives to about an elevation of 2,600 feet, what we call in Switzerland a bump. (laughs) Directly opposite, you could see the Jewish temple across the Kidron Valley. They would pass the villages of Bethany and Bethage. The pilgrims would be singing special psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalm 120 to and Psalms of Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. Baruch haba Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus arrived in Bethany six miles outside Jerusalem, six days before the Passover. As Petra told us last week, a very special family lived in that town. Martha, Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I think we can safely assume that Jesus had an open invitation in their home. John tells us that there was a dinner held in Jesus' honor, during which Mary anointed her beloved rabbi with costly perfume. In hindsight, a beautiful anointing for a king. As thousands of people from all over Israel and beyond poured into Jerusalem, the city burst at its seams. And because of that, many pilgrims would camp outside the city on the Mount of Olives. The next Sunday, the next day Sunday, they made their way to Jerusalem. Jesus had told his disciples many, many times to their absolute horror that he was going to Jerusalem to die. Descending the Mount of Olives, they would cross the Kidron Valley and enter through the golden gate of the eastern wall and into the temple court. All four Gospels tell us that Jesus rode a young donkey. Mark gives a more detailed account of how two disciples were sent to borrow a donkey and its colt for the master's use. Now, why in the world would Jesus ride a donkey? And even stranger, an unbroken colt, the young of a donkey. They had horses, they had mules, which is a horse-donkey hybrid. What is he doing when he rides a donkey into the capital city? Interestingly, this is the only time recorded in the Gospels where Jesus rides rather than walks. Donkeys are a very familiar sight in Mediterranean countries. In Morocco, we saw them every day in the fields or carrying very heavy burdens in the narrow city streets. Let me tell you, you would not choose a donkey to show off. It was a beast of burden, a work of animal, and quite a stubborn one at that. Jesus' choice of an unbroken colt for transportation was deliberate and highly significant. A king would never ride a baby donkey. Jesus was, in fact, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Zechariah prophesied, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem! See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." Jesus is acting out, in real time, the prophecy of Zechariah. He's claiming to be that promised king of Israel who would establish the throne of David in Jerusalem. You know that, until now, Jesus had stayed away from proclaiming himself as the Messiah, what theologians call the messianic secret. But with this dramatic entrance into Jerusalem, everything changed. The secret was out, and the crowd seemed to get it. They waved palm branches, a symbol of victory, as we see in Revelation 7. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. It also echoes the Feast of Tabernacles, when God's people waved palm branches to recall the Exodus. Look at Leviticus 23. It says, On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees from palms, willows and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Would Jesus, like Moses, lead a new exodus and deliver them from this bondage? They spread their cloaks on the road before Jesus. A throwback to the time when Jehu was pronounced king over Israel. Look at Second Kings. Jehu said, Here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. What did the people do? They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. By spreading their cloaks on the road, the crowds signaled that they recognized Jesus as royalty, somehow similar to like putting out the red carpet. And joyful shouts of Hosanna were heard. The Hebrew word for Hosanna means save us or God saves an expression of both praise and petition. To understand the deep, deep significance of these events, let's step back a little bit and take a look at God's unfolding story of redeeming his people from their ultimate oppressor. We'll first look at the historical background and the meaning of Passover. Secondly, we'll look at the political situation during Jesus' time, and then thirdly, how these major events at the beginning of Holy Week teach us valuable lessons about our beautiful Savior. The Passover was the first of three major annual feasts God had appointed for his people to remember that he is a God who saves. Look at Deuteronomy. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. The annual Passover feast commemorated Israel's miraculous deliverance from slavery in Egypt. You remember hard-hearted Pharaoh who did not Want to let his slaves go. God sent plagues that culminated in the death of the firstborn sons, and the only way to escape the coming wrath was to kill a lamb and put its blood over the doorposts of their doors. When God saw the blood, he would pass over them. This is where we get the word pass over from. Moses led the people out of Egypt and toward the promised land. Interestingly, God had given them very specific instructions. Look at Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, tell the whole community of Israelites that when remember these numbers, that on the 10th day of this month, Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And maybe already you're putting the two things together. Israel would reenact this incredible act of deliverance at the Passover every single year. Interestingly, all four Gospels record Christ's entering Jerusalem on the Lamb's Selection Day, and clearly associate Jesus' death with the Passover. The temple priests would be sacrificing the Passover lambs in the temple, while Jesus, the Lamb of God, died. On the cross. But alas, other pharaohs followed. In 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon destroyed the city and carried the people into exile. Another Egypt, another enslavement. When they finally returned, the city was in ruins, the temple destroyed, and it's during this time that the prophet Zechariah prophesied. A future king would come and ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, but other oppressors followed. Hundreds of years later, Israel is yet again under occupation by a foreign nation. In 63 BC, Roman legions under Pompey conquered Jerusalem. The golden age predicted by the prophets had not come. Instead, Israel chafed under the oppressive rule of a pagan nation. They yearned for the messianic deliverer that the prophets had spoken of. When would Messiah come? How long, O Lord? Their hopes became more and more political. They were longing for a Savior to ride into Jerusalem, to crush the Roman oppressor and reestablish Israel to its former glory. How long, O Lord? Do you ever pray that prayer? God, when will you answer? When will you deliver? I think we all have. As we witness injustice, corruption, violence, and pain, we pray, how long, O Lord? Deep in the memory of God's people would be the ancient covenant with King David In 2 Samuel 7, he promised to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The greater King David would come and put an end to war and reign over an everlasting kingdom of peace. So on this backdrop, now enter Jesus. Israel was ripe with rumors about this rabbi from Nazareth who went around the country healing the lame and blind, feeding the multitudes, teaching with authority, even raising a dead man back to life. The miracle of Lazarus' resurrection had spread like a wildfire and many believed because of it. But the religious leaders felt threatened by Jesus' popularity and actively plotted to kill him. And as we read, even Lazarus was added to their hit list. The enemy was hard at work to snuff out the light of the world. Rumors were swirling that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for Pesach, the Passover. Hopes were rising. Jesus had rejected being a political messiah. We read in John 6, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself alone. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, he made public his claim to be their Messiah in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. This was quite different, as you can imagine, from other grand entrances. I remembered a huge spectacle when King Mohammed VI would visit our city. The spiffed-up city cleared of riffraff and beggars, streets and buildings whitewashed, thousands of onlookers would wave flags to welcome the long caravan of black security vehicles. The crowd would wait for hours to get a glimpse of His Royal Majesty. Roman conquerors would enter on majestic horses, dressed in splendid uniforms, carrying weapons, surrounded by soldiers, a truly impressive and intimidating show of power. Jesus, the rabbi from the poor and despised village of Nazareth, entered the capital city, plodding along on a borrowed donkey, lowly and humble, unarmed. I can imagine the Roman soldiers snickering. They were certainly not impressed. Isaiah tells us he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. His followers? Ordinary people, just like us. Healed beggars, tax collectors, prostitutes, slaves. Very unimpressive indeed. Ridiculous, in fact. David and I, my very, very tall husband, uh, often um, chuckle about his attempts in Morocco to ride the small Berber horses. He could almost wrap his long legs around the belly of the, the Berber horse. It was not a pretty sight. Do you know the only two adjectives, adjectives, Jesus ever used to describe himself? You wanna take a guess? Humble, he said in Matthew 11, I am humble and gentle in heart. He showed us a better way. Power made perfect in weakness. So what did Jesus do once he entered Jerusalem? Nothing. He did not throw out the Romans. No, instead he got arrested, imprisoned, and ultimately handed over to the Romans for execution. What an anticlimax. What whiplash from heightened expectation to dashed hopes and bitter disappointment. What kind of messiah is this? What kind of king is this? By Friday, the Hosanna had been silenced. The crowd disenchanted. He had failed their expectations. The rabbi from Nazareth was a disappointing imposter. Only five days later, some of the crowd who had previously shouted praises now shouted for his death. Jesus was not the Messiah they had hoped for, the political deliverer they desired, the insurrectionist to topple Rome. Jesus did come, to defeat an enemy, but not the one they had in mind. Instead, he came to defeat the ultimate enemy and bring eternal deliverance through his death and resurrection. What image do you have of the Messiah? Have you been disappointed? You had high expectations? what was going to happen, but things did not turn out the way you wanted. Hope turned into sadness, frustration, maybe even anger. We've all been there, I think. In our story today, this issue is actually magnified as a whole crowd experienced the whiplash of high expectations and then dashed hopes. You know, Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. He disturbs our theology. God does not fit into our boxes. We often develop idols in our mind, a God of our imagination. And then the real God breaks in and smashes our idols. And we are back at his feet again like mary i came across this strange quote by cs lewis from his book a grief observed but i immediately knew what he meant he talks about iconoclasts a weird word which literally means image breakers iconoclast an image-breaker. This is his quote. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. God shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The Incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. Our story today is a supreme example of an other mind-boggling iconoclast. We experience this, if you think about your own life, we experienced this individually, but also corporately. We as a church have gone through a tough time of unmet expectations by losing our beloved Pastor Andy. We prayed for healing, didn't we? This was not our plan. But can we still trust God that He is good? And has good plans for us? Just like the disciples, God's ways often surprise and confound us. And at that moment, we have a choice to make. Will we continue to trust Him when we don't understand? Will we allow the potter to do his work in forming and shaping us, forming our church into what he has called us to be? Some years ago, I was nominated for a teaching position that I was so excited about. When it didn't work out, I was crushed. I struggled with resentment and even anger. Yet looking back, I see God's hand molding me through this painful experience and ultimately providing for me and my family in unexpected ways. How about you? Are you struggling with unmet expectations in some area of your life? As we've read through the the Gospel of John, John would call us, to believe, and we will see the glory of God. He would call us, in First Corinthians, Paul would call us to behold Christ, our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed for us. Looking at this story again, I'm struck that God is Lord of history. The crucifixion was not an accident, that caught Jesus by surprise. He is not a victim of events spinning out of control. Jesus willingly rode into Jerusalem and laid down his life for us. He chose the cross. The events had been prophesied down to the details. The young of a donkey, Judah's betrayal, Peter's denial, he is Lord. His plan of redeeming all things will not be thwarted. The Jews were expecting a king, a great military leader like David, who would throw off Rome's yoke with force. Jesus was radically different from their expectations. We all have situations where God does not live up to our expectations. Difficult marriages, children who walk away or don't fit our mold, illness, chronic pain, tragedies, loneliness. I think that temptation is to bail out, try to do things our own way, give in and give up. Are we, I wonder, like the crowd, who hailed Christ as king just as long as he fit their expectation. I want to encourage us this morning. We don't believe in some random God we have created in our imagination, a feel-good God who does what we want. It's the opposite. God has and will exist for all eternity. And in his overflowing love for his creation, he has revealed himself through his word, his prophets, and most clearly through his son Jesus who walked among us. We can trust him. He is faithful. He is Lord. I have sat in these very pews at times, unable to form the words of worship songs, tears streaming down my face because of intense inner pain. I know some of you have, and are as well. Life can be really hard. I believe it's in those moments we make a decision. Will I continue to worship my Savior? Even though my dreams have shattered, my pain remains. I will never forget Pastor Andy's words in his last sermon to us. This is what he said, quote, We have a choice every day. Will we choose to follow Jesus? If we do, we will look to him to guide us. We don't have to be afraid of death. Jesus dealt with death, end of quote. That is faith in the midst of pain and broken dreams. We can trust the one who laid down his life for us And who will return one day, not on a donkey, but riding on a cloud? Look in Revelation 1-7, look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. He will come to take us with Him to our eternal home, where there will be no more tears, and no more sorrow, pain, or death. Will you recommit yourself this morning to your gentle and humble savior? Or maybe give your life to him for the very first time. He welcomes prodigal sons and daughters with open arms. This is the good news, the true king has come. He has laid down his life as the ultimate Passover sacrifice to redeem his creation for his own. There is only one true king and his name is Jesus. There is no one like him. I've developed a habit of singing or speaking love to God every day. No matter how I feel, I sing to God and whisper, I love you, Jesus, throughout the day. Sometimes defiantly, through tears. We don't adhere to a religious creed, but to the lover of our souls. I would encourage you to get into this habit as well. You will be so blessed. Just whisper, I love you, Jesus, throughout the day. His kingdom is not like our kingdoms. Jesus comes humble, mounted on the young of a donkey. His kingdom does not come through the sword, but through the cross. His peace is not built on the blood of his enemies, but on his own blood. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.